Our reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 6 through 17. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angels to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The word of the Lord. You know, we all have um, our favorite little daily routines that make up what we might call life as normal. One of my favorite is that in the morning, I like a good cup of coffee. I like a blueberry muffin, preferably toasted, maybe with a little butter on it. I like a, a quiet space where I can read my Bible, meditate, and pray. But sometimes life as normal gets challenged. I happened to be living in New York City on 9-11. And uh, when, uh, when the planes first hit the towers, I was not at home. So I didn't realize what was happening until I got back in my building and I realized um, my neighbors came and they said, hey, Eric, did you hear what happened? And I said, no. And they said, you better come inside and take a look at the TV. We watched together in shock just a couple of miles from where it was all happening as the two towers crumbled into oblivion. 
Later on, I went back to my apartment and I tried to go into my normal routine um, because I hadn't eaten yet that day. But as I made my coffee and I toasted my muffin and I sat down to eat it, I just stared in shock at the plate and I said, how can I just go on with life as normal? How can I indulge in the comforts of this daily routine in light of everything that's just happened? Right now, reality demands a different response from me. Has something like that ever happened to you? Times when things get really real, especially things you didn't see coming or things you thought that would never happen to me, and then it does. Maybe a loved one dies suddenly or you make a life-altering mistake or find out that you have a life-threatening disease. Or maybe it's a global pandemic that turns the world upside down. But when reality hits like that, it shocks us into seeing things in a different way. And we realize that life as normal never was normal and that reality demands a different response from us. We are finishing a series today on the book of Revelation. And Revelation ends where it began with a reality that shocks us into seeing that life as normal cannot remain the same. Three times in this passage, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. To our modern ears, the second coming of Jesus Christ sounds crazy. It sounds like a flight from reality. But I want to urge us this morning to consider for just a few moments what if this is not a flight from reality, but ultimate reality, in light of which life as normal cannot possibly remain the same? Let's see two big things about the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ this morning. We're going to see the importance of this reality and our response to this reality. The importance and the response. So first, the importance of this reality. Um, let's begin with the hardest part first. In verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the second coming of Jesus Christ means healing and renewal for the whole material world. That is a wonderful, beautiful reality. But here we see that the second coming of Jesus Christ also means that he's coming to judge the world which means we are in a head-on collision with our culture. Because for us, the idea of Judgment Day sounds so primitive, so barbaric, that no civilized, enlightened person could possibly believe in that. So what do we say to that? Well, first, we should ask the question, is the idea of judgment really that primitive? You know, we had a whole sermon on the justice of God just a few weeks ago, but... Let me give you just a little bit of a recap. Our world that we live in has never been more passionate about justice than it is today. Oftentimes, in fact, uh, people who are most passionate about justice uh, are sometimes the most secular. We see evil and injustice in this world, and we demand judgment on that. We're passionate about that. In fact, if you want to see this passion in action, just look at cancel culture. And I understand there's a big debate about that in our culture right now, but the debate is not about whether judgment is right. The, the debate is about what is worthy of judgment and how should we go about it, but no one is disputing that wrongdoing demands judgment. 
No one is disputing that. So we should ask the question, why would we expect God to care less about justice than we do? If, if we know that evil and wrongdoing demands judgment, and we do know that, how much more should God? In fact, a God who, who sees evil and injustice in this world and does nothing about it would not be worthy of our worship. And that leads to another thing that we need to see about why this is so important. Because at this point, we might say, okay, then God is going to, he's going to reward those who do right and punish those who do wrong. And at, at a surface reading of this passage, it might seem to confirm that interpretation, because not only does Jesus say, I am going to repay everyone according to what they have done. If you look at verses 14 and 15, it says, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This sounds like traditional religion. In other words, if you wash your robes, that means if you cleanse yourself, if you live a good, holy, pure, and righteous life, then God will love you and accept you. But if you do the wrong thing, if you do murder or uh, sexual immorality, then God will reject you. That's what it sounds like. But friends, it's deeper than that. The question is not so much how are we behaving, how we're living, as the question is, what are we worshiping? What are we building our identity on? That's not to say that our behavior isn't important. It is, but our behavior, the way we live, is the ultimate result. It's the overflow of what we worship. Let me show you. Uh, the whole book of Revelation is a vision that was given to the Apostle John. Now, most of that vision was revealed to him by an angel. The angel is kind of like a tour guide. But here in, in verse 8, uh, John is so blown away by everything he's seen that he falls down to worship the angel. And the angel kind of freaks out and says, don't do that. <laughs> I am your fellow servant with you and, and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this book, book, worship God. Now, here's what's so amazing about this. This is not the first time that John has tried to worship the angel. Back in chapter 19, John tried to worship the angel back there. Here's why this is so amazing. If anyone ought to know better than to worship something other than God, it should be the Apostle John. He knew Jesus personally. He followed Jesus for three years. He saw the risen Jesus. In fact, at the beginning of Revelation, he has a vision of the divine, glorious Jesus. But, and yet even John is tempted to false worship. Even John is. And here's what's so amazing about this. You know, the fact that this happens for the second time here at the very end of the book of Revelation is not a coincidence. It's emphasizing one of the main purposes of the book of Revelation is to show us the difference between true worship and false worship and to emphasize the importance of true worship, which is very challenging for us. Because in our culture, when it comes to religious and spiritual truth claims, we say that we should reject absolute spiritual truth claims. That you have to find what's true for you in order to become your true self. So in our culture, true worship simply means whatever works for you, whatever helps you become your true authentic self. That's what we mean by it. But don't you see, if you say that, 
That is not getting rid of absolute spiritual truth claims. It's simply substituting an alternative spiritual truth claim, namely that it doesn't matter what you worship as long as it helps you become your true self. But that is still an absolute spiritual truth claim. Here's what's so amazing about the gospel. The gospel says, yes, it is crucially important that you become your true self. But here's the thing. Becoming your true self is not a matter of you customizing um, your life according to your personal feelings and preferences. Your true self is not something that you create or define or determine. God does. In fact, God is passionate about seeing you become your true, authentic self. But if we insist on, um, on determining ourselves, on creating ourselves, on defining ourselves, the tragic irony of that is that we actually end up disintegrating ourselves. So if you look again at verse 15, it talks about this. It says, outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practice falsehood. Um, when it says outside of the dogs, you know, that's shocking language. In fact, it's dehumanizing language. And that's the point. The language is intended to shock us into seeing a reality that demands a different response for us. So that word idolaters there, an idol is anything you worship other than God. In other words, if we worship career or success or money or family or romance, if we worship sexual fulfillment or politics or being a good person or being on the right side of history or especially in our culture, being a liberated person, all of those are good things, but none of them are God. And if we build our identity, if we build our whole sense of self on, on any of these things and not God, the, what happens is we end up disintegrating ourselves because when those things end, we end. So when, when this says outside are the dogs, that's a way of emphasizing the reality that if we worship self, if we worship anything other than God and build our identity and our sense of self on that, it dehumanizes us. That, that you can be so focused on self that you actually end up disintegrating yourself. So friends, you know, I, I was especially, you know, um, kind of blown away this week as I was meditating on the language of this passage. I realized, wow, this is really very relevant for us in our culture. Because there are certain things that our culture fears more than other things. One of the things our culture fears the most, we were just talking about, is not becoming your true self. And especially when your true self is not acknowledged or recognized by others, we fear that deeply. Another thing that our culture fears deeply is not just FOMO, fear of missing out. We especially fear FOBLO, fear of being left out. And you realize that this passage is showing us that if we worship self, if we fail to worship God, if we build our whole identity and sense of self on self, and that disintegrates us, that, that our worst fears actually come true as a result of that. No one ever put it better than C.S. Lewis. He said it like this. He said, it may happen to any one of us who to appear at last before the face of God and hear only the appalling words, I never knew you, depart from me. In some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who's present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely 
outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. Friends, the judgment of God is not something that God does to us against our will. The judgment of God is simply the inevitable result of what happens if we build our identity, our sense of self, on something other than God, if we build it on self. Right now, your life is on a trajectory. And at the end of the day, there are only two things that you can worship, and every human being worships something. At the end of the day, there are only two options. Either you worship God or you worship yourself. Your life is on a trajectory right now, and when Jesus returns, that trajectory will be unalterably and eternally confirmed. There will be no change of course. And that leads to the second and last thing we see this morning. We've just seen the importance of the reality of the second coming. Secondly, we see our response to this reality. Because if all of this is true, then Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality that demands a different response for, from us. That means that, that we can't just go on with life as normal in light of Jesus. So what does this mean for our lives? Well, Revelation emphasizes true worship. And friends, true worship means staying true to Jesus. True worship means staying true to Jesus. So if you look at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, God himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is an amazing statement of self-disclosure from God himself. But in our passage at the very end of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus takes God's words to himself and says, that's talking about me. Friends, this, here's why this is so important for us. You know, the, there's a, one of the central doctrines in Christianity is something called the Trinity. That means that God is one God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, over the years, many people have said, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, that was a late invention of the church. This idea of worshiping Jesus as God, was that was just a power play by certain Christian leaders who wanted to consolidate their power base hundreds of years after Jesus lived. But worshiping Jesus as God, that was never something the earliest Christians believed. That's what many people say. But this verse and many, many others in the Bible proves that that idea is wrong. That, that Jesus is the God of the universe and worshiping Jesus as God was present in Christianity from the very beginning. So for instance, you know, there are um, uh, many, many different um, competing ideas out there about who Jesus really is, what Jesus really taught, what it really means to follow Jesus. Lots of competing ideas out there. Um, so for instance, Stephen Prothrow is a professor of American religion at Boston University. Um, he's such a recognized expert that when news shows want to bring on an expert in American religion, a lot of times Stephen Prothrow is one of the people they call. He wrote a book some years ago called American Jesus, and it's really tiny, but the subtitle is How the Son of God Became a National Icon. The book is all about the history of America and how every generation in American history has tended to see Jesus according to its own cultural values. So in the 18th century age of enlightenment with Thomas Jefferson and folks like that, they saw Jesus as a wise ethical teacher. 
Since then, we've had manly Jesus, sentimental Jesus. We've had white Jesus, black Jesus, Buddhist Jesus, Mormon Jesus. We've had boyfriend Jesus. We've had progressive Jesus. We've had Republican Jesus. One of the big takeaways of the book is that we all have a tendency to create Jesus according to our own image. When Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, he's saying, you do not construct me according to your image. I am not whatever works for you. I am who I am, and you either know me and relate to me according to who I am and on my terms or not at all. So one of the biggest challenges for the very first Christians living in the Roman Empire was that Rome said, look, you're free to worship whatever God you want as long as you also worship the emperor. The reason Christians were killed was because they said, we can't do that. We won't do that. There is only one Lord, one God, one true king over the whole universe. His name is Jesus, and we worship him and only him. You know, our modern world is a lot different from the ancient Roman Empire, but it's remarkably, remarkably similar in this respect. In our culture, we say, look, you're free to worship whatever God you want as long as you don't say that your God is the true God. We're just like the Roman Empire. In our culture, there is tremendous pressure to compromise staying true to Jesus. You know, if, if, if John was, was tempted to worship something other than God, why was it so easy for him? For the same reason that it's so easy for us to worship something other than God. A lot of times, it's just a heck of a lot easier than obedience to Jesus. True worship means staying true to Jesus. And one of the main ways we do that is something else the book of Revelation emphasizes over and over. And we see it especially in this passage. Verse 6 says, these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. And then the rest of the passage goes on to hammer this idea. Verse 7 says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Verse 9 talks about all who keep the words of this book. Now that word keep is a very important word in the Bible. Uh, keep is a word that means to guard, protect, treasure, nurture, and obey. So how are you going to know Jesus? Keep his word. How are you going to follow Jesus? Keep his word. How are you going to stay true to Jesus? Keep his word. Here's why this is so important for us. I'm going to illustrate this for you. You know, there are two ways of flying an airplane. The first way is something called flying by vision. Uh, when the skies are clear, when everything is clear in the sky, no matter how vertiginous the heights, you can see the horizon, you can see the ground, you can see all the obstacles, when the skies are clear, you can trust your own vision to fly safely. But when you're flying in clouds, you have to do something called flying by instruments. If you can't see clearly, what's going to keep you from crashing into a mountain or crashing into the ground? Only the instruments that are built into the aircraft. Friends, keeping the word of Jesus is like flying by instruments. The only thing that will keep us from crashing is if we have a picture of reality that is better than, than the picture we are capable of giving ourselves. Because our world, our minds, our hearts are full of clouds that keep us from seeing clearly. Especially today, you know, it's become very common for many people to um, deconstruct their faith, to deconstruct the Bible. And, you know, there are actually some very understandable 
um, reasons for this. Institutional religions, like many other institutions, have let a lot of people down. It's understandable that we would have this idea in our culture that we need to deconstruct the Bible. But here's the irony about this. Our generation, uh, if every generation in history is the most biblically illiterate generation that has ever existed. That means that fewer and fewer people actually know what the Bible says, and yet we're more and more convinced that what the Bible says is primitive and barbaric. Friends, I want to encourage you that if you explore, if you investigate the Bible fearlessly and honestly with some trustworthy guides, the Bible has a curious way of deconstructing the deconstruction. In other words, you'll begin to see that many of your assumptions about the Bible were more culturally based than biblically based. So if you're exploring faith and spirituality, then at the end of the day, you're going to have to decide who you believe Jesus really is. And, and one of the main reasons we're here as a church is we want to provide uh, resources that will help you to do that. And so keep coming back because that's one of the main things we do. But, but let me just say this much today. You are not going to find any other Jesus other than the divine, crucified, risen Lord, Savior, and King that is presented to us in the pages of the Bible. From a historical point of reality, that's who Jesus said he is. And you can follow some other Jesus. You're perfectly welcome to do that. But historically speaking, you're not following the real Jesus. Friends, the only place you meet him is in his word. Keep his word. Guard his word. Treasure it. Protect it. Nurture it. Trust it. How are you going to do that? The only way is by seeing that, that the word of Jesus is not the only thing that's called trustworthy and true. In Revelation 19, verse 11, it says that Jesus himself is trustworthy and true. And Jesus proved his trustworthiness to you by giving his life for you. If we go back to verse 14 and 15, remember it said that Christians are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city, but outside are the dogs. You know, it's easy to look at that and think that washing your robes means now you go and be a good, holy, pure, virtuous, and righteous person. And if you do, then God will love you and accept you and you will earn your way into heaven. That's not what it's saying. If you go back to Revelation chapter 7, in verse 14, it tells us that Christians are people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Christians are people who've washed their robes, not in their own righteousness, but in the blood, in the righteousness of the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true pure one. Jesus is the true holy one. Jesus is the true perfectly righteous one. But, but Jesus Christ, friends, when they stripped him naked and beat him and flogged him, they were dehumanizing him. He, he became a dog. They dehumanized Jesus like a dog. And then they led Jesus outside the gates of the city and nailed him to a cross. Jesus poured out his blood for you so that you could find your true self in him. That means that you are not saved by your performance, your righteousness, your holiness, your goodness, your virtue, your sacrifice, but his. And Jesus welcomes you exactly as you are. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to pull yourself together. You don't need to be more virtuous than you really are. You just need to come as you are. But friends, Jesus Christ will never leave you as you are. There is no life as normal in light of Jesus. Life as normal is precisely what must go 
in order that something infinitely better may come, that you might become your true self in him, that you might become the true self he created you to be. Worship God and you will become that true self. Worship Jesus and you will become the true self. Worship yourself and you will end up disintegrating yourself. Jesus says, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. That means come, find the true self that you were created to be in Jesus. Come, experience the transformation that you were meant for in Jesus. Experience everything you were meant to be in Jesus. He is the reality in light of which everything must change. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your eternal word. Your word, Lord, is living and active, trustworthy and true. It's faithful and true. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that your name is faithful and true and that you proved your faithfulness and your truth to us by giving your life for us on the cross. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us um, to be shocked in a good way more and more to change our lives in light of the reality of who you are, why you came and what you did for us by dying and rising from the dead. Lord, help us, we pray, to stay true to you, to remember that true worship means staying true to Jesus. I pray that you will help all of us to see you as you really are, to love you as you really are, and to follow you as you really are, Lord Jesus. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.